Welcome to episode one of The Listening Brain. Welcome to The Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. And in this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Today, I speak with Dr. Jane Medell, a dear friend and colleague. For those of you who don't know her, Jane is an audiologist, a speech-language pathologist, and a LISL auditory verbal therapist. Her clinical and research interests include hearing in infants and children, management of severe and profound hearing loss, and auditory processing disorders. She's published seven books, numerous book chapters, and articles, and she continues to present nationally and internationally on topics related to hearing loss in children and working with families. She's also a recipient of the Marion Downs Award for Excellence in Pediatric Audiology. And with Irene Taylor Brodsky, she's the director and producer of the film, The Listening Project. Here's my conversation with Jane. Jane Medell, thank you for being here and talking to us today on The Listening Brain about your distinguished career. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got started in the field? Um, actually, it's sort of an interesting story. I think I got into audiology almost by accident. Um, I have been in this field for over 50 years, and when I graduated from high school, which was in 1961, I didn't feel like girls could go to medical school. So I didn't feel like that was a choice for me. Um, so, but I wanted to do something in the helping professions and I was looking around for what I was going to do. Um, I didn't want to be a nurse because I, I didn't want, I, I knew I wasn't someone who took direction well. I wanted <laughs> a job where I was going to be the person who did the work. Um, I didn't want to be a classroom teacher. And I had a cousin with a hearing loss from rubella, which is a disorder we don't have anymore, fortunately, in the United States. Although in my travels to other countries, I have seen that, we, that it still exists. Um, so um, I, went, I decided, you know, I was a volunteer in high school at the New York League for the Heart of Hearing, which is now the Center for Hearing and Communication. And I decided this was good. So I went to my, col my college advisor and, and said I wanted to do something in speech and hearing, and he sent me to Emerson College, where David Luderman was my mentor. So I really lucked out, and I, I got to do something that was exciting. Been, I've been doing something exciting for more than 50 years. Oh, that's incredible. You know, few people can say that after 50 years that I know. I'm very lucky that they can look back on a career uh, like yours and say you've done something so exciting. Emerson College, uh, I think many people in the field are familiar with uh, David Luderman and his work on counseling. Mm -hmm. What did you take from David? Uh, well, um, David taught me my first audiology course, and he was my first clinical supervisor. And um, when he started the deaf nursery program, I, I left Emerson, went to the University of Wisconsin to get my master's degree. And at that point, David got a grant to start the deaf nursery program, the first deaf nursery program. Mm 
And he invited me back to be the first audiologist in the deaf nursery program. And so I learned two things from David that were extraordinary. And I still talk to him about this. The first thing I learned was how, how audiology is not a technical field. And people who treat it only as a technical field are not doing their patients a service. And they're also going to be very bored in their lives. Um, he taught uh, me the importance of dealing with the emotions that the families had when they have a child with a hearing loss. And if we don't do that, we can't help their children succeed. The other thing David taught me, which changed my life entirely as a profession, my professional life was I went into him one day and said to him, this child is not testable. I'd seen a very difficult kid. And we've all seen kids like that. Anyone who's worked with kids has seen those kids. And he said to me, what you mean is you don't know how to test this child. And you're going to have to write in the report. I did. I don't, I was not able to test this child. That was monumental to me because first of all, it changed my attitude about the way I looked at children. It, and I've said this to everybody. I've, I've had the opportunity to teach many, many people over the years. And I've always said it can't ever be the child's fault. If I can't do it, it's my fault, my weak, my lack of skill that's causing me to not test this child. It can never be the child's fault. It's a child. And it forced me or encouraged me to develop skills so that I can test almost every child. It doesn't happen often. There are some kids I can't test. But then I know it's my it's my lack of skill. Let's do it. It can never be the child's fault. Right. I, we, we still see I still see reports myself where the child could not be tested. Um, and I and I get those things uh, not as often as maybe uh, as we once did. But yeah, I still as, but I still see that being written in reports. Uh, and, and it should never be written in a report. It can't. It's not the child who's not testable. It's we who don't know how to test the child. Right. And do you think that some of that comes from lack of training from the uh, audiologist that was working with the child? I think it comes from lack of training and it also comes from attitude. I think mm. people give up too soon. If you're having trouble testing a child, you have to figure out how to get to the child. Right. What is it that I could do that could make this child more interested in what I'm doing? What toy can I find? I mean, I had the most enormous toy collection <laughs> in my clinic because every child is different and will be interested in a different thing. I went to a clinic as a to do a consultation and they had two toys. Now, if I'm doing therapy, you know, maybe you can manage with a small number of toys because it's different philosophy. But if I'm testing a child, it is so, let's be frank, hearing testing is a boring task. <laughs> we need to make it exciting. And the way we make it exciting is by finding things that are interesting to the child. And so we need a lot of different toys. Um, so if you've only got two toys in the clinic, you don't recognize that this child, you know, that, that you're not looking to, to entertain the child while you're doing hearing tests. 
Right. And do you think that, um, you know, sometimes I see, you know, where the audiologist may not be exactly a pediatric audiologist and they may not take the time or have the time in their schedule allotted to really spend an hour or two hours or whatever, whatever it takes to get accurate information on a child? Well, I think that the first thing is if you see a child twice a year, then you shouldn't see children at all. Unless you see children on a very regular basis, you're not going to develop the skills to test anybody who is not really easy to test. And secondly, I don't, I think that you need to think that it may take you more than one visit to get all the information you need. Mm -hmm. And you need to be prepared for that. I think that, you know, I don't think you can get a complete evaluation. I know you can't get a complete evaluation on a child in 20 minutes. But if you have, if your clinic will only allow 30 minute appointments, you have to be prepared and they have to be prepared and the parents have to be prepared that you, it's going to take three or four visits for you to get the information you need. And if we are upfront about that in the beginning, I mean, parents are annoyed. They want you to do it all in one visit, but they understand that, you know, I'm looking out for the best for your child. And the more experienced you are, the easier it will be to get information in a short time. Right. Well, I want to go back to something else you were saying about uh, sort of this uh, technocentric point of view that I think we sometimes fall into that the technology is going to fix all the issues. And I think that kind of rolls into what we were just speaking about in terms of not taking the time to test, but, you know, getting a, a, some type of quick result or not being able to get much at all, maybe fitting the technology based on very little information, and then thinking that's sort of going to fix the problem. Uh, and then let's move on and see the next patient. Um, I, I do see that sometimes uh, happening uh, more often than it should. I'll tell you something that I see happening more often than it should. People set the hearing aids based on really a measurements. Mm -hmm and assume that they have done what they need to do. They don't then test the child using behavioral methods to see what the child hears. I mean, the title of this, of this podcast is The Listening Brain. Mm -hmm. Real ear doesn't tell you what's reaching the brain. Real ear tells you what's reaching the eardrum. You can get real ear on a corpse. <laughs> And it's important to remember that when you do electroacoustic measures, you are setting it according to what the hearing aid dis company is saying should be where you should set it. But that is an average and it doesn't work for every child. And unless you go into the test booth and see what the child hears, you don't, you don't know what you have to fix. And I have had too many audiologists say to me, <clears throat> I met the target gains, I'm done. You're right. not done unless the child hears. You can't teach a child to listen and talk unless the audiologist has done their job 
and made sure that the child hears. And that means we have to do validation and verification. We right. have to take the child into the test booth. I believe we have to get aided thresholds and make sure we're testing at the top of the string beam. Mm -hmm. And then we need to do speech perception testing and we need to know whether the child understands normal conversation, soft conversation and speech and noise. Mm -hmm. I agree with you 100%, but I do I see uh, that often this that degree of testing isn't happening of looking at right. what the child can do functionally with their hearing aids or cochlear implants too and we can get into the whole cochlear implant world as well uh, that we're not seeing those fun those functional measures being done consistently. Uh, I, I'm fortunate I work with a team at Akron Children's Hospital where they are doing those things, but uh, I do see reports that come to us from other places and you know it's it's a challenge uh, to try to figure out what the child can hear uh, based on right. just that information. Uh, and you I don't just, see these things happening. I just taught an online course in which people it was for for auditory verbal therapists and and people who are trying to become auditory verbal therapists and auditory verbal educators. And people were submitting cases. And they were saying, "My, this, I'm working with a child. He can't hear these particular phonemes. He can't hear when I'm more than two feet away, whatever the problem was. And I kept saying, okay, I need to see their audiologic test results. I need to see their aided test results because I can't fix it if I don't know what's happening. And there are no aided test results. Nobody, you know, they, I, I heard from person after person, the audiologist who, the, who I work with don't do speech perception testing. And I, I'm, I'm absolutely floored by that. The reason we fit technology mm -hmm. is to have children hear speech. We have to get sound to the auditory brain. And if we don't have, if they don't have auditory access, they cannot learn to listen and talk. And it's our job as audiologists to be 100% certain that they have auditory access. And you can't know that by saying you've met the target gains. Right. Uh, <clears throat> it's a challenge. It's one of those areas of the field that we need to keep working on. And I admire your advocacy uh, with your peers. And I know that uh, there, there have probably been times when You've gotten some, um, shall, we, shall we say, challenged, been challenged on your point of view. Right. And I can cite references to help <laughs> people understand that. But I get a lot of pushback. There's no question about it. But sometimes, <clears throat> because I've been in this field for a long time, and people know that the kids I work with, I mean, the kids I have worked with are really successful. Right. So, um, I mean, I, I, I had one person who was, who, the person who ran the hearing aid center while I was the director of the program at Beth Israel. And I walked into the clinic one day and she said to the mother, just do what Jane tells you. Her kids are successful. <laughs> and um, it's, but it's because I'm completely neurotic about making sure that they hear everything and every decibel counts. It's not okay, okay to hear a 35 dB at 4,000 Hertz, because that means you're not hearing. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I, if you're neurotic, I think we have a responsibility as audiologists to be neurotic about making sure that our children hear and, and 
eight and reallier and um, target gains do not tell us what the child hears. And it's, you know, with the technology we have today, you know, most kids, just about all kids can get those high frequency sounds with the S and the SH. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and when we kind of uh, don't go there and kind of leave that on the table uh, and not really uh, letting the child hear those sounds, we're affecting their progress and language and speech uh, across the board uh, if they can hear those high frequencies. It, it's, it, makes, it makes a difference in who they can be when they grow up. Because if you don't hear those high sounds, you miss plurals, you miss possessives, you miss all kinds of grammatical markers that make a difference in your language. So does it matter? Yes. yes. More than almost half of the phonemes have energy at, at 4,000 hertz and above. Right. Does it matter if you hear them? Yes, it matters. It ma yeah. It's critical. Right. Exactly. Well... Let's kind of uh, shift back to your career for a moment. And I, I appreciate all of uh, these uh, clinical issues that we want to talk about, and we can get into some others in, in just a moment. But looking back at your career, you've, you've been a program director, you've been a professor, you've been a clinician, you're a writer, uh, presenter, in high demand, uh, you've been a researcher. Um, how do you see yourself in all of this? How do you define yourself? Um, I define myself first as a clinician and second as an educator. Um, I mean, I was a clinician. I, I was, I was very lucky in my career. Things just mm -hmm. sort of happened. I, I, I came to the, to different places at the right time. Mm -hmm. I was, I, I was at Emerson college. So when David started the deaf nursery program, I got to be the first audiologist in that program, which was extraordinary. Right. Um, then um, we, we, we got, we went back on our, I got my PhD, moved to Knoxville, Tennessee, where I taught for two years. That wasn't a great experience for me because it was, we moved there in 1968 in the middle of the Vietnam war. The wow. politics of Tennessee and, and me were not in the same place. I was going to um, say that probably was a big culture shock for this New, uh, New York it, girl going to Tennessee. It was a big, it was, Yes, it was. I mean, we don't have to talk about that's not pertinent to this discussion. <laughs> talk about it at another time. And then my husband got a postdoc in New York. Mm. So we moved to New York thinking we were moving there for a year. And I went to the New York League for the Hard of Hearing where I had been a volunteer in high school. And I knew that they had the philosophy I had of, of teaching kids to listen and talk. And when I went in there, they were in the, they had had a program, their, their, their center had been divided into adult services and children's services, which mm -hmm. someone directing adult services, someone directing children's services. And this is 1970, the field was changing and they had decided they, were, they needed to break them up into audiology and speech because now they were separate fields. I mean, when mm -hmm. I started, you got one degree in speech and hearing. Right. Um, and because I had a PhD and I ha was certified in both audiology and speech, and let me say I took the very first audiology exam, and that was quite hard. Wow. We had decibel problems, which we don't have anymore in certification. But at any rate, they just they decided they they all, they said if I was willing to give them two years, I could either be the director of audiology or the director of speech. I could decide which one I wanted to do. Oh wow. 
And that was a hard decision because I really was was both, and I always think of myself as with both of those hats. Uh, I decided to be the director. I would take the position as director of audiology. Um, at first, I, ca I said I couldn't do it. I was only going to be here for a year. I went home and told my husband, and he said, are you nuts? Go back <laughs> and tell them you'll do it. I'll find something to do. And we thought we were staying in New York for a short time. Um, I stayed at the New York League for the Heart of Hearing for 21 years wow. as director of audiology and built what was an extraordinary program. Sure. And then um, I moved to um, the um, Long Island College Hospital, which was part of Continuum Health Partners, where um, I, I also built that program and started a cochlear implant program there. And then I, we moved, I moved to Beth Israel, which is part of the same continuum, Health Partners, Beth Israel, New York Eye and Ear, where we built a very large cochlear implant center. And so we called it the Hearing and Learning Center. And so it had all the services there. It had speech, it had auditory verbal practice, it had educators who went into the schools, it had audiology, it had surgery, and we did hearing aids and cochlear implants. And the philosophy was, from the time I left the League for the Hard of Hearing, the philosophy was that it was providing all services for children with hearing loss, um, except school. And wow. our philosophy was they were gonna go to mainstream schools and we were just gonna help them. And it's interesting, when I started as a volunteer at the New York League for the Hard of Hearing when I was in high school, Public schools didn't provide any services for children. So a kid with a hearing loss would come to the league on Saturday morning and do get speech therapy and educational services and academic tutoring because they couldn't get it in school. It wasn't available. That's much different now. You have right. these services in schools. We have to fight to get them for our kids, but they're available in most schools. And um, so, I, I had the philosophy of, of audiology not being a thing by itself, but being part of a very big picture. And so the programs that I built at Litch, Beth Israel, New York Eye and Ear, were all the, were, had, had this global view of mm -hmm. services for children with hearing loss. And everybody worked together. And I think the fact that we had, that people did hearing aids and cochlear implants at the same place, helped a lot because it helped everybody to understand that how quickly you could move from hearing aids to cochlear implants. Right. When people are, are when people are doing hearing aids only, they sometimes don't recognize that it's time to move a child into a cochlear implant. Where if you're right. in a center that does everything, it's easier to do. Yeah, it's interesting to go out and talk to audiologists trying to get them to refer their patients for cochlear right. implants today. Um, and if they're pediatric audiologists only doing hearing aids, uh, they sometimes you know, miss those referrals uh, onto the team. Right. So I like the, the concept that you had then was that continuum of services exactly. being in place. Yes. Um, that was a very unique model at that point in time. Right. It was, correct. Um, but I've seen people who worked with me in that program go and spread that model. Right. And that's the, that's the best thing that could happen. 
that people are seeing it as a continuum of services, that everything available in one place. Right. No stop, one stop shopping if you have a child with a hearing loss. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a real testament to your legacy in terms of uh, helping, you know, sort of set a standard of care uh, for the children that you're working with there. So how, from the league, where from there? Well, from the league, I went to to this group of hospitals, part of Continuum Health Partners, right. Long Island College Hospital, then Beth Israel, New York Ioneer. And then um, I retired, although my granddaughter says, I don't know why you call this retired, um, but I stopped working as the director of a clinical program in um, 2009. Mm -hmm. And since then, I have had the good fortune to be to travel both in the United States and outside of the United States teaching. Mm -hmm. And what I do is try to share my philosophy and share my expectations that everything is possible for a child with a hearing loss. And that our job is to make sure that we get children, we, we, we get, give children the opportunity to be whoever they want to be and that, that we can do that and we have the opportunity to do that and we have the obligation to do that if you don't believe deaf kids can succeed you shouldn't be working in this field right because you're i mean what i say is if, if you don't believe deaf kids can succeed you should sell shoes but you shouldn't be <laughs> testing kids right i agree with you 100 percent, and i think it's sort of that uh that challenge that we have among some professionals of having such low expectations of what these children can do. And it's not just other audiologists or pediatric audiology, but I see it within even speech language pathology. When I do presentations and, and talk or do consulting and talk to individuals that are working with children and, and the targets they've selected for therapy are way off and, or too low or, and it, just, you know, low expectations, lack of training, lack of knowledge of what these kids can do today. Well, look at what speech pathologists get in, in learning about therapy for children with hearing loss. If they're really, 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 really lucky, they have one whole semester. But for the majority mm -hmm. of them, they don't even get that. They get a couple of lectures in, in some therapy class. That's right. They don't really get enough practice about what is possible for a child with a hearing loss. And that's a problem. It's a real problem. And, you know, as you know, I'm on faculty here at the University of Akron. You know, it could be that a child, excuse me, a, a grad student could go through their entire graduate program without ever working with a child with hearing loss. Right. Uh, the way the requirements are now set up, um, where when I was in, in training, we all talk about, well, well when I did it, uh, it was a little different in that you had to get, I think, at least 20 clock hours of oral habilitation. Uh, and so they broke down all the different areas of practice into different, you know, different amounts of hours. Right. And even that's not enough uh, of 20 hours. But, but it's uh, something. But it was something. It was a target that you knew that you at least had some exposure to that disorder or that diagnosis right. where today they could go through a whole program. Uh, fortunately for us here at Akron, we do have that specialization in place that's been there for a number of years. But yeah, we, yeah I see SLPs that have graduated from other programs all the time. And 
you know, they talk about, you know, one of the areas that they know the least about is hearing loss um, and yes. you know, pediatric hearing loss. So it's a challenge. When I was, well, I, I, I was very lucky in the exposure that I had. Dorothy Noto Lewis, who was one of the first, um, one of the first people who involved in, in building auditory verbal practice along with Doreen Pollack and Helen Beebe. I mean, D Hel Dorothy Noto Lewis was one of the grandmothers of this field and she was at the League for the Heart of Hearing. And so I worked mm -hmm. with her from the time I was in high school. And, you know, and she, she just believed that deaf kids could hear. And that was when we had really bad hearing aids. We didn't, I mean, no one had even dreamed of a cochlear implant yet. Mm. Um, and she, I mean, they, those kids were stars because Dorothy insisted they could be stars. And then when I went to college, um, the person who taught oral rehab was, which is what they called it at the time, mm -hmm. was named Helen Patton. She was about 70 years old. She was this little tiny lady who was, I, I don't actually know whether she was a speech pathologist or a teacher of the deaf, but she just absolutely believed that those kids were going to listen and talk. And we went to, she did therapy, she did speech therapy or auditory therapy, whatever you wanted to call it, you know, in the dark ages when we did this, <laughs> at um, a school for the deaf in, Bo in Boston. She would pick us up and take us to the school and we would do therapy. For the, wow. you know, with these kids, and it was an it was an oral school. I mean, it was there was no signing. The kids right. were learning to, to talk, and they they all were oral, and you know, and I did I learned to do therapy from this queen who was just brilliant, and um, you know, and then you know, so I I just had I've been lucky in my in what I got to choose, and I got been lucky in where I ended up because I learned from people who were just brilliant. Well, as you were explaining that and and, and remembering those things, I, I was just thinking you you really have had some really wonderful mentors over the years that have guided you. Um, I, we need more mentors uh, like that in the field today. I think. Well, I'm trying to be that mentor to people who are in audiology um, whenever I can, right. and in auditory verbal practice because I also do mentoring there. But um, it's. Um, I think I think those of us who have been lucky enough to learn well have an obligation to pass it on. And mm -hmm. that's I mean, my, my family says to me sometimes, why are you still doing this? I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I'm not young. <laughs> um, and I, I, I just feel like. I, I feel like I don't I have an obligation to pass it on. Sure. Uh, and that, you know, so I need I, I mean, anyone who listen, I will try to pass it on to because I, th I feel so strongly that we can't deaf kids can be successful, but we have an obligation. It, it's not, it's not okay. I'm doing an audiogram, pass it on to the next person who'll fit the hearing aid. Don't bother to test the kid. I met target gains. Okay. Go to the speech therapist in the school who's never seen a kid with a hearing loss. Or, I mean, I had a, ch a child that came to me for a consultation, um, maybe a year ago. The family was in a panic because the child was finishing first grade and not doing well. She had been a late identified child. This was a child who failed newborn hearing screening. The pediatrician said, don't worry about it. Hmm. The kid had some swallowing issues. She was so a, a therapist who was doing swallowing therapy and she wasn't developing good speech language skills. And this therapist is continuing to do therapy with this child and nobody did a hearing test. Hmm. And then when the child went for her fifth five year um, evaluation, 
um, physical, the father said, I don't think she hears. Make sure they test her hearing. They sent her for a hearing test. She had a moderately severe sensory neural hearing loss. She was fit with hearing aids in the ENT office, and the audiologist said, her hearing isn't so bad, she doesn't need an FM system. Oh, my. So this kid who had was late identified goes into school with no FM system, so we're saying with no auditory access. The teacher in the classroom was saying, well, she's not that bright. Let me tell you, when we did a psychoed eval, we discovered she was very bright, but everybody along the way had messed up. Right. Um, the school messed up. That's a whole different story. But, but you know, nobody was aggressive, and you have to be aggressive. And when par- when I talk to parents now, and when I talk to the kids, when we did the movie, the listening project, I mean, everybody talked about how aggressive I was in mm-hmm. making sure they heard. And yes, that's what that's that's the requirement. Well, it's it's making sure these kids don't fall through the cracks. And uh, unfortunately, with it's that child, it's, it's more than fa- not falling through the cracks. That kid mm-hmm. was a very bad exception. Right. But it's even when we get them early and we get technology on them, we have to be absolutely sure they hear what they need to hear with the technology and just right. getting um, target gains with the hearing aids is not enough. Right. Well, you mentioned uh, The Listening Project, and this is an exciting film that, that you've done with Irene Taylor Brodsky. Talk to me about how that came about, because it's really exciting. Well, I write a blog for Hearing Health Matters in which I talk about pediatric audiology issues. And at one point, a few, a few years ago, I was feeling like I didn't know what to say. So, I just, and I was hearing from parents of newly identified kids that they wanted to, you know, they just sort of were in a panic and, and wanted to know what to do to make their kids successful. <clears throat> so I decided I would contact some of my old kids, in quotes, since they were now all adults, um, and ask them what the, you know, what they thought, what advice they would have for parents of newly identified kids. What did they feel was good for them? What did they feel was not good for them? And I decided I would, I mean, what was, what do I know about making a movie? I decided I was just going to call them on the, each, talk to each of them on the phone or in person if I could and take notes about what they had to say about the, their life growing up deaf. And there were also some, you know, a couple of books had come out at the time about how awful it was to mainstream hearing impaired kids. And I had all these kids who were doctors and lawyers and rabbis and whatever. And it's like, you know, this side isn't getting out. Mm-hmm. So I decided I would start collecting information. Then I went to Oregon to do a workshop. And in the audience was Irene and her husband and her parents who are deaf. And Irene and her husband had brought their son, Jonas, to me a few years before to, dis- to talk to me about whether he should get a cochlear implant. And I said, yes, he should. Tomorrow he needs a cochlear implant. <laughs> and he was about two at the time. And um, so Irene came up to me and said, do you remember us? I said, of course I remember you. And we started talking. And I said, you know, Irene, I have this idea. <laughs> And so it was like an accident that they came to this mm-hmm. workshop. And um, I said to Irene, I have this idea. I want to interview these kids. And she said, let's do it. 
Um, Irene wow. had, you know, she, and, and um, she said, Jonas is now at the age where he's really doing well. He's in school. He was in a school program that was half day English, half day Spanish. He was doing very well. And, um, and she said, I want to know what's in the future. And so we got a grant from the Obercotter Foundation and we, Irene came to New York with a, with a uh, cameraman. I have a very long living room, dining room. We just moved all the furniture out and we had, we made a film studio in my living room and we spent, we interviewed 15 kids. We spent two hours with each kid, got oh. enormous amounts of footage. Mm. And then I did the interviewing and then um, we, Irene went and we edit, did most of the editing. I did some of the editing with her. She did the, the, obviously the great majority of the work because she's a filmmaker, um, not. And she, I did all the, I, I did the interviewing and I and figured out what was important and what the kids were saying. And then Irene put it together and I went out there and helped with the final editing with the music. We did captioning. Where, and now we have the captions in Spanish for the population that needs that. Um, and so we made this movie, which we've been very, has gotten, I'm very happy to say has gotten wonderful acceptance. We showed it for the first time at the American Cochlear Implant Alliance and we got a standing ovation. Amazing. Uh, it, it was, and I, you know, I showed it in, and, and, and after we showed the movie, we had all the kids come, some of, six of the kids who were in the movie. I keep calling them kids. They're really adults. But they right. were my kids, so that that's how I think of them. Right. Um, and we did a panel, and they were wonderful. Um, and I've done that now several times, where I've done, I've shown the movie and had a panel of kids who were in the movie talk, you know, answer questions. And we showed it at A.G. Bell in in June in Arizona. And it's interesting. The parents who see it of young, of young children are just sobbing and saying how wonderful this is because it gives them all the hope they need. And that's, of course, our goal. Um, and the adults with hearing loss, uh, you know, are also crying and saying someone understands that, you know, sh that we're showing what these kids talk about, what it's like to live with a hearing loss. And people and, and, and you know, the, people think you put a hearing aid on. It's like glasses. Everything's perfect. And those of mm -hmm. us who work in the field know that's not true. And so adults with hearing loss say it's so great to have to, for people to see what this is. Um, and what, when I was out, one of the times I was out with Irene editing, her son had a bullying experience at school in which someone had mm. <clears throat> pulled off his hat, his hearing aid went, his cochlear implant went flying and broke. Mm. And he was there with, he texted his mom and said, my, you know, told her what happened and said, bring my backup. And, um, I was there and I said to her, okay, we have to have an in-service with the school. And she, she wrote, she called the school principal and arranged for a few days later for us to have an in-service with the bully and a couple of other kids and some of jo of her son's friends who are support, you know, who, who support mm -hmm. him and a bunch of teachers. So there are maybe eight or 10 of us in this room. And I talked about what it was like to have a hearing loss and, and what Jonas could and couldn't do and, you know, and why we need, you know, that, that he need you know, he, when it's noisy, he needs additional help, um, things like that. And I talked a lot about what the kids were in the movie were saying, and they said, what is this thing that you're doing? 
And Irene and I decided we would have a short version of the film that kids could take to school. Oh, you know, that's we, great. We would eliminate the stuff about intimacy and, you know, the, the mm -hmm. adult stuff and talk about the listening stuff. And so we have a short version of the film that can go to school with kids with hearing loss so that their peers can get some understanding of what it's like to have a hearing loss. And how can people access the film or both films? Um, well, if you go to www.thelisteningprojectfilm.org, you will get to the website, which will show you the trailer. Um, and then it will give you... Um, how to order the film. You, we're, the, the, our distributor is Collective Eye. Um, they do educational distribution. And you can order the film from them. You get a DVD, which has an introduction by me, and it has the full-length film and the short film. And in a couple of months, we will have a new DVD, which in addition to that has the Spanish captions. That's amazing. Well, that's that film, both films, uh, as well as the one for our Hispanic families. Uh, that's going to be an, an incredible resource for for professionals and families and parents to tap into. It is. And what I want, you know, I, what, the the signing community is has done a much better job of PR than we have. Mm -hmm. than, the, than the people who support listening and spoken language. And that's because I think because our kids are mainstreamed and they sort of are invisible. Right. People don't recognize that, they don't even know that they're there. I mean, a couple of the kids in the movie talk about how, what happens when they tell someone they're deaf. I mean, one of the kids said, a very common comment is, are you sure? Because here she is speaking so beautifully and it's like, yeah, I'm sure, I know I'm deaf. <laughs> if I take right. my cochlear implant, I will really be deaf. So, I mean, and they, and every kid in the movie has had that experience right. where people, you know, don't, you know, they, and they talk about it, they laugh about it, and it's really funny. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think we haven't done a good enough job. And I'm hoping that this movie, I want to figure out a way that this movie can reach parents of newly identified kids so that they know that listening in spoken language is an option. What I want is for every pediatric audiology clinic in the country to be showing this in the waiting room right. so that everybody knows. And I want to get it to every pediatrician. So, And I don't know how to do that. But so that everybody knows that listening in spoken language is a real opportunity for children who are deaf and hard of hearing, right. that they're capable of listening. And that's why I made this movie. Well, it's it, it's a wonderful resource. And, and I'm I'm thinking in terms of how these adults now uh, who are doing so well blend in, they are in a sense defining deafness in a whole new way. And uh, exactly. that's exciting. One of the kids said, one of the, one of the women says, uh, said, you know, when I, when someone, when someone, I tell someone I'm deaf, they go to a place where deaf doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's correct because it's, you know, as my friend Carol Flexer says, it's not the same old deafness. Right. We are in a different place than we were even 15 years ago. And we need to recognize with newborn hearing screening and with the technology that's av available today, every child has the opportunity 
to use listening and spoken language and to use it successfully, um, especially because 95% of deaf children are born to hearing parents who don't know sign language. If we had to wait for them to learn it, it's going to be a very long time before they develop that skill. That's right. That's right. Well, it's exciting what you're working on with uh, the Listening Project. I also wanted to ask you about uh, the Global Foundation for Children with Hearing Loss and some of the work that you're doing there with Paige Singer, uh, excuse me, Paige Stringer, uh, and, and some Paige, of her work. Paige Stringer has done an amazing job of building this incredible program called the Global Foundation for Children with Hearing Loss, in which she brings audiologists and auditory verbal therapists, auditory verbal educators, to countries that don't have services. Um, most of the work has been done in Vietnam. And what she, she, she did this in exactly the right way. Um, we are, it's a sequential training program. When we don't go in there once and be there for two weeks and then leave and nothing happens. The program is we train people who are, there aren't audiologists in, the, in Vietnam or in many of the countries that she goes to, audiology technicians. So we're training people to do the technical work, to test hearing, to fit technology. Um, I mean, in most, in, in Vietnam, we did, they didn't even have sound field testing available so when we first started. So testing kids how they're doing with their hearing aids was hard to do. She brings in auditory verbal therapists, and there's a four-year program. People from all over the country come to this one school for the deaf in the summer for four weeks when there are no children there. The children, so they can sleep in the dorms, mm -hmm. and they get therapy training, and they get lectures, and they work with kids, and then they take a test. And if they pass the test, then they come back for year two. Mm -hmm. And then they come back for year three and year four. And then, and so we've reached the point now in Vietnam where it's, you know, like we're teaching them to fish. The people who've been through the program are now training the next group of people. Right. So, so although, so we're moving, Paige is going to different places in Vietnam and building programs in different places so that we can build the skills there. She's been doing work in Ecuador and right now she's in Mongolia. Right. Um, where she's working, uh, you know, doing therapy there. So it has really been, um, she's done an extraordinary job and it's been absolutely an honor to be involved in this and to try to give people the philosophy that every child with hearing loss is capable of listening and talking. Well, and it, it's been wonderful. It is amazing work and I've admired what, uh, what Paige has done and the foundation and admire all of the uh, professionals that have given of their time like you and, and others who've gone over with her and, and has done some very important work in different areas of the world. Yes. And I think I just admire yeah. that the work that you guys are doing. It's, it's been an honor to do it. And Vietnam is the place where rubella still exists because mm -hmm. they don't vaccinate. So I was stunned when I went there the first or second time, one of the times I was there in a children's hospital, and there were all these kids who are, who are deaf and, all, and everything else from rubella. And I'm thinking, mm. you know, we don't even think about rubella anymore as a possibility for what's happening in this world. And because we are lucky in this country, um, and, and here we are in Vietnam where, first of all, there are still children who have symptoms from the poison that was dropped during the Vietnam War, which is still on the ground. 
Right. And then we have diseases like rubella where they don't have vaccinations. Um, you know, and, and families are so grateful to us for testing their, their kids because there was no other service available for them. So it, it was, you know, it was an incredible learning experience and it's been an incredible honor to be involved in that program. And I absolutely love Vietnam. <laughs> well, as we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, you've had such a exciting and distinguished career and you know, it almost sounds like it's ending. It's not ending. You're doing all this amazing work. It's continuing on. Um, what what advice do you give to others? Uh, maybe a, a, a pediatric audiologist in training, or someone who would like to have a similar career as yours. Well, the first thing is that I think you need to broaden what you learn. I think that I'm I'm good at what I do because I'm not just I don't just see the world as an audiologist. I think mm -hmm. that even if you're not planning on getting certified as a speech language pathologist, the fact that I had that training and I took those courses, um, I don't need to learn how to do aphasia therapy. You don't need to learn how to do neurological disorders, but if you, you need the basic information about speech language pathology to recognize what is going on and what a to recognize things happening in children. Mm -hmm. You need to see, spend a lot of time seeing typical children so you recognize what is typical two-year-old behavior versus deaf two-year-old behavior. And actually there's no such thing as deaf two-year-old behavior, but if, mm -hmm. you, if you, I mean, you need to know a lot about children, you need to know a lot about speech language, and you need to know a lot about audiology. Um, but I think that and I think if you want to be a pediatric audiologist, you should do pediatric audiology. Because the more you do, the more you learn, the more you know. And it is such an exciting world. So, you know, it's a wonderful place to be. But you need to know a lot to do it well. Mm -hmm. So maintain that curiosity and, and go Absolutely. beyond just audiology and learn yeah. these other areas. You need to, I mean, you need, I had one of my, doc, my doctoral minors was in behavior disorders in children. Mm -hmm. So I had to take a course in, in what was then called mental retardation and, and autism and all of those things. So I, I had a breadth of knowledge about children with hearing loss, with, about children that helped me recognize when I was working with children with hearing loss when something else was going on. So I think all of that helps you to do a better job at what you do. Well, I think that is sage advice. And Jane, I thank you for, for sharing so much with us today. I thank really you appreciate so much it. Thanks for inviting me. I've, I've loved it. I love Jane's passion, and she continues to be one of my personal inspirations. And if you love what we're doing with this podcast, please consider leaving a favorable review on iTunes. Reviews help us reach new listeners, grow the show and lets us continue to put out content that you enjoy. This podcast has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network. And as always, thank you for listening.